the separation of parents, what's happening at the border, that is in the news all the time in different ways, maybe not front page. But the problems are there. The cruel and inhumane treatment of human beings, separating little children from their mothers, putting two-year-olds and three-year-olds in courtrooms uh, where they can't even say a word. And they have to now say, my life is um, under threat. They can't say that. And so really the cruelty is really the point of this administration. And I hope in years to come, everybody that's been part of this process gets some sort of way to be accountable. Just because you're an employee of an agency that's doing giving directives of this type of nature, do you not have a moral compass? Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Tamina Watson, founder and immigration lawyer at Watson Immigration Law here in Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Tamina. Thank you so much for having me, Ronit. Thank you for being here. Appreciate it. So you have been working in immigration law for how long now? Since 2006. And you are originally from where? Well, I was born and raised in London, but my parents are from Bangladesh, so I lived there for a little while. But when anybody asks me, where is home? Home is London. Okay. And when you went into law, did you know that you wanted to work with immigration? Um, actually, no. Immigration was the furthest thing from my mind. I wanted to practice litigation. Um, I was a lawyer in the UK. I studied to be a barrister, qualified to be a barrister, which is a trial lawyer in the United States. And in fact, the word barrister didn't mean anything until George Clooney married one. Oh, right. So now I can actually say the word and know that people know what it means. And so I trained to be a barrister. I was a barrister for about uh, two years before I moved to the United States and restarted education. I went to, um, I had to take the bar exams, actually. And I then, noticed that you actually can practice law in two of our states here as well. Yes. Well, what happened was the New York Bar allowed me to practice federal law for, and I, and I can do that anywhere in the country. And I wasn't necessarily inclined to take the Washington Bar once I realized I could, you know, practice. But eventually, for many, many reasons, it turned out that I needed to take this. And I finally took it in 2019. Okay. So, so sorry, let me reset you. So you are practicing law in London, and then you move here. Mm -hmm. And how did immigration law become something you decided you wanted to be involved with? I had my own sleepless in Seattle moment. <laughs> um, after my UK bar exams, I came to the US to have a vacation. And I met this wonderful man, uh, who eventually became my husband. And so I had to go through the immigration process myself. And I had an immigration attorney who helped me with my paperwork. And eventually, when I was looking for a job, I had just gotten my own green card. I had just passed the bar exams in the U.S. looking for a job. And I started to work with her. And while it wasn't my first choice, it was really one of the best choices at that time. And I went into it kicking and screaming because I, I didn't really want to practice immigration law. But once I succumbed to this calling, hmm. I realized that it was what I was meant to do. And so I fell into it 
but it was my purpose in life that I realized soon thereafter. So what did the calling feel like? How did you know that you were being called? Because I had three or four immigration job offers come my way and I kept saying, go away, please, go away, please. And eventually the, the final one, when it arrived, seemed like the right choice. And so the second day of practicing immigration law, I thought, why was I fighting this? This is everything I've been wanting to do, changing people's lives, you know, protect due process rights, human rights. And uh, it's so intellectually challenging, yet fast paced. So you can actually see the end of a case, start to be the, to end uh, of the life cycle of a case where you're actually affecting somebody's life. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the sweetest moment is when somebody calls you with a shriek, a deafening shriek, and your phone has to drop from your hands because they are so elated that they have a green card in their hands. And so you actually are able to help almost anybody from the battered wife battered spouse, battered woman, to the CEO of a company, to anybody and everybody in between. And so you're really helping people mm -hmm. uh, and not just having a transaction at, let's say, a bigger law firm where you're just making corporations fund money after money. It's, it, it's very much a personal, personal, individualized practice of law. And when you were working, when you were practicing and you were a barista, barrister, excuse me, when you were a barrister, not a barista. Well, you know, that was a thing that people used to think I did. I did, I did it. Oh, silly American. Anyway, um, when you were practicing law in England, what, what kind of litigation were you doing? You know, as a baby barrister, as they call them, because you've just qualified, I did primarily um, criminal law and then a little bit of civil law. And in the and the, the system is very different. If you do not train under somebody, uh, which is called a pupillage, you cannot get your license, your eventual qualifying license. And so, my, and they're divided into six month periods: first six, second six, and then you're qualified, and then you continue to work until you have a permanent position. And so, I did the twelve months of uh, pupillages. Uh, and that's when I did primarily criminal law. And when I did my third six, which is where I'm trying to find out what I'm doing next, uh, trying to find a home, mm -hmm. uh, um, I did a lot of criminal law and civil law. And it's interesting because, um, you know, criminal law is where you get the most experience because you're doing the bail hearings and the sentencing hearings and, you know, trials for DUIs and so forth. You're really in the courtroom by yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you're by yourself, you've got to be thinking on your feet. And so the training that you have in the UK for barristers is one year. And it's a, a good amount of time to just grow very fast. Mm -hmm. And so when I moved here, I didn't go to court very much, you know, uh -huh. and eventually I thought to myself, why am I not going to court? I was trained to go to court. Mm -hmm. And eventually when I started to take court hearings, court cases, I was pregnant with my first child. And I realized that the stress of all of the court processes and procedures and the locations and the timings, they were not conducive to the lifestyle I had at that time. Mm -hmm. And so slowly I started to stop doing the court cases. But eventually in the last two years, I've, I've got a roundabout way of helping in court cases, and I'll come to that shortly. And do you have an understanding of why... Uh, you had offers to be an immigration lawyer, uh, specifically why those were coming your way when you first got here? I wish I could tell you. I just think there was something in the stars that, you mm -hmm. know, was telling me that I had to do this. And I wasn't seeing the signs. 
Uh-huh. Until the fourth, the fourth uh, offer. Until the fourth offer. <laughs> and so when did you begin your own law firm? In 2009. So from 2006 to the end of 2008, I was practicing with the lawyer who helped me get my green card. Mm-hmm. But I learned how not to practice law from her. And um, eventually... Was... Does she know that's how you feel? Yes. And, um, you know, that's a different story for a different time. But my husband is incredibly encouraging and supportive. And with his encouragement, I anxiously and with a lot of, you know, nervousness started my own practice on January 1st, 2009. And in, you know, in 2019, I celebrated 10 That's years. That's right. Happy practice. anniversary. Well, thank you. Yeah. And in fact, this month is my 11th anniversary. Wow. That's right. Yeah. So a question is, uh, how long does a typical immigration case take? And I, I, as I ask that, I think that's probably a really complicated answer. Unfortunately, it is a complicated answer. And the reason is that there are various categories, paths, criteria, you know, um, um, many, many aspects of uh, process goes into one green card application. And where you fall into this system determines how long your case will be. But in a nutshell, there are three substantive headings, if you like. There's family-based immigration, there's employment-based immigration, Mm -hmm. and there's almost all the other categories, asylum and refugee and so forth. Um, Family-based is parent, child, spouse, siblings. Mm -hmm. Those are the the four main categories. But they're also categorized by the relationship of the person sponsoring you, meaning that if your mother is sponsoring the child, is the mother a U.S. citizen or not? Mm -hmm. Is the child um, uh, over 21 or under 21? Is the child married or not married? Which country are they from? Uh, And those uh, determine the length of the processing time. For employment-based, there's the first cat- first preference, second, all the way to fifth. But they're also then categorized by countries. Mm. And then they're also categorized by, um, essentially, the, the first and the fifth, those are categorized by education sometimes uh, or investment amounts and so forth. It's a very complicated process. But one thing to know, know is every country um, around, you know, not, people coming from different countries from to the United States, those countries only have a 7% quota. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if you're from India uh, and there's a 7% quota, people who are apl- applying as, you, you know, Indian citizens to get green cards in the U.S., their waiting time is very long mm-hmm. because the, the demand is significantly higher than supply. But if you're coming from, let's say, Norway, it's a smaller country, but you're still getting 7%. Right. And so your waiting time is significantly less. And so all of these criteria determine where you're going to be waiting, how long you're going to be waiting. Does That's that it. deter uh, prospective employers from seeking uh, employees from those countries that might have too many people and a long wait, do you think? Uh, yes and no. Um, no, because... There is a serious lack of talent in this country when it comes to skilled professional. And one of the examples I give to people is just look at your mobile phone. From the hardware to the software to the network, if you look at the people monitoring and helping and keeping those um, aspects uh, working, you have skilled professionals that are often not U.S. citizens. 
Uh, and a large number of those people are coming from India and China. Although, mm -hmm. you know, people from different countries come, but those are the uh, predominant countries. And, you know, a business cannot necessarily wait for, you know, a, a, an American worker to come along. So there mm -hmm. are lots of um, processes that an employer has to go through to hire somebody, whether it's on a temporary visa or a permanent one. And the processes for each of these are very different. Um, but it, it's, it can be a deterrent because it's costly. Uh, and it can be a deterrent because there are time issues involved. Um, but the, the, the pros for that is you've, you've got to meet your own business needs. Mm -hmm. And so often people are just looking at what do I need to do now? What do I need to do for the next five years? And is it worth it? And more often than not, for employers who find a really good employee, they do go through those steps and hurdles to ensure that they get keep the employees that they like. Mm -hmm. And and what about asylum cases? Do you have a sense of how many of those cases you take versus the other types of immigration cases you take? That's a really good question. In my early days, I took a lot of those asylum cases, but over time, I've not taken them as much, um, primarily because the business cases, uh, I have a knack for them. And the asylum cases, not that I don't have a knack for them, often there's a language barrier. Uh, and so over the years, I've learned that if I have an interpreter to help me with a case, it takes a lot longer to get through that case than it would otherwise. And things do often get lost in translation. So mm -hmm. if somebody who is speaking Spanish and we have an interpreter speaking to me, things can get lost in translation. So it's better for that client to speak to a Spanish-speaking immigration oh, attorney. See. And so over time, I've learned that if I don't speak the language, I won't take the case. And uh, it's served me well, and it's served our clients well. So it's not that we don't get the calls at our office. We get them all the time. Um, but more often than not, I'll just say, go to my friend so-and-so who speaks your language. It's a better fit for everybody. But having said that, over the last two years in this new era that we find ourselves in with this administration, I have set up a nonprofit and the nonprofit is called um, Washington Immigrant Defense Network. And what's happening in, in under this administration particularly is detention mm -hmm. is the primary goal of everything when it comes to immigration. And uh, when you have a case in detention, those immigrants find it very difficult to find an attorney. Uh, it's costly. You can't go out there and search forever. Uh, and it, there's, there are time-sensitive issues involved from the time that you're in court for your first appearance to your hearing if you're detained. It can be four or five months uh, as quick as that. If you're not detained, it can take years. Uh, why Why the difference if you're not detained? Very good question. The, the, they want to make sure that those who are in detention, those cases are moving faster mm -hmm. uh, for obvious reasons. If they're not in detention, then you're, that there's, no that there's not a rush necessarily in the same way. And nobody necessarily likes that, but that's how the backlog has um, evolved. And if you listen to the news at any given time, you'll hear that there is a lot of discussion about backlogs. And it's because um, a, a lot of factors have come into this. But essentially, in a nutshell, there's a, there's a very lo long backlog when it comes to non-detained cases. 
Uh, and during that time, the detainee, the, the immigrant is outside of detention. Um, often they have work permission and they're uh, sort of living. I life. was going to ask what their mm-hmm. lifestyle is like. Is it doable? Is it um, is it workable or are they under threat of having to leave the country before their case gets heard? That can happen, but if they're bonded out, so to speak, um, and immigrants do get bond, although the bond is higher and higher these days and unaffordable, so they remain detained, um, they are allowed to have work permits at certain times in the you know, case um, process, uh, particularly for asylum, for example. But this administration is trying to change that as well. It used to be that you can get your work permit within six months, but now they're trying to make sure that's you know, prolonged and you cannot apply. And those are in the pipeline. So this administration is really trying to find ways to not be helpful. Exactly. And do you think that they're trying to make it harder to get a work visa so that being here is untenable? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So can you take me back to when this administration first started to flex this new kind of track? For immigration uh, cases and for immigrants coming into this country, a lot of us saw the news. We saw people at airports. We saw lawyers trying to aid people who were in this trouble. So what was that like for you and what are some notable memories of that time? Thank you for asking this important question. Um, And I'm going to go back a little bit further in time uh, from this administration's, you know, know, office. I was very fortunate to be part of the immigration team of Hillary Clinton's campaign. And what that meant was I was a volunteer of a small team that met by phone once a month. And I knew that in the first 100 days of her office, there would be immigration reform. And over the years, I had become a policy wonk, and I was really hoping to see immigration reform at the time. So there was a lot of energy around that. And then when the election was lost very unexpectedly, after crying for a week, like almost all of us, mm-hmm. you know, I th- realized that I needed to channel that um, anger and despair into something positive. Uh, and if what this president said during the campaign trail was going to be true in any way, shape or form, we, the immigration lawyers, would have to be in position to help. And one of the things that I recognized was everybody is going to need an immigration lawyer, <laughs> whether you're a lawmaker, policymaker, you know, organization. Immigration law was his linchpin for getting things done. Um, and so I went to our local immigration lawyers association called um, American L- Immigration Lawyers Association. And every state has a chapter. So we have a chapter. And I went to our chapter folks and said, well, you've got to give me a committee. You know, everybody was dumbfounded. Nobody really knew what to do. But I knew something needed to happen to be in position. So they got out of my way and gave me a committee. We called it the Response Committee. So between November 2016 and January 2017, I was just telling people, we're here. We're here when you need us because you're going to need us. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, the inauguration happens on a Saturday. And on a Wednesday, the very first executive order uh, is released. And the... The two that were signed were interior enforcement and there was border security. Those were the two. And uh, there were four others that were not signed. And so there were four leaked as, you know, we were going to sign them. And, you know, everyone's taking stock of what's happened. The mayor at that time, it was Mayor Murray, had a press release. I was very lucky to be invited to go to the press release. And um, by Wednesday, the travel ban came down at 5 p.m., 
But between Wednesday and Friday, people were just trying to get, gather what do these two, you know, executive orders mean? Because it sort of took away all of the Obama priorities of who would be deported and basically said anybody's deportable. I'm paraphrasing what it said, but mm-hmm. it had a criteria which made everybody deportable. Uh, in, you know, if you're out of status, if you had a criminal conviction, if you look funny, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, if you're if an immigration officer suspect, suspects. And so they took away all the priorities. And so for those two days, people were just trying to understand the implication. But boom, comes the travel ban and those two executive orders take a back seat. So that Friday at 5 p.m., it, you know, it dropped. And I saw that and I dropped everything. I sat at my dining table with my computer and my husband saw my face. He took the children away and I had not moved from my desk uh, except for giving a speech at the rally that happened that Sunday where it was just heads and heads and heads. My first rally speech until that Tuesday, because what happened thereafter, because I had told people we're here, Mm -hmm. my phone and my email just blew up. Hey, I have passengers stuck here. I have passengers stuck there. And lawmakers saying, hey, can you give me analysis of blah, blah, section of the of the law? Um, and at that day, people don't know this, but that's the night the Keep Washington Act was born, which eventually passed last year, actually. It took a long time for and that. And can act. you explain what that is? Keep Washington Act is a state uh, law that uh, has a lot of um, considerations for immigrants working here. Uh, but it started that night. Mm-hmm. And so my phone blew up, my email blew up. And then, you know, I just couldn't realize how to do intake. You know, I how do I know that this passenger stuck at this airport and so forth? And luckily, so one of my committee members, his name is at the time, Greg McLawson, a very renowned immigration attorney, had just gone to the airport that weekend saying, I'm just going to go to the airport to see what's going on, where where all the chaos was happening. Mm -hmm. And the International Rescue Committee uh, had a volunteer leader here. His name is Takao Yamada. He was already at the airport. And so Sunday they came back to me and said, you know, this is the situation. You know, we're just haphazardly doing this. What can we do? And I said, well, I don't know how to do my Google Sheets because I'm just doing my Google intake and I I am not fast enough. Mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, it's not conducive to spreading it out quick enough. And so Greg came back on that Sunday saying, hey, I have a technology company um, come to me and say they want to help. And I said, take my Google Sheets, let's do something (laughs) with it. And that eventually became Airport Lawyer, and which uh, launched the following weekend. So about that week we took to uh, create and launch Airport Lawyer, which was essentially an intake process for distressed passengers, whether they're in the U.S. or outside the U.S. They can notify um, that they need help, and then volunteer immigration lawyers would be at at the relevant airport. And so that following weekend, people don't remember this, but I remember it so well because our website was launching and we had a snowstorm and we had no electricity uh, and I had trees fallen on each side of my driveway. So I was essentially trapped. I couldn't leave to go to my office. And so I was AWOL for a whole whole day when people are looking for me. And eventually my husband had a small uh, generator that managed to get some power to my phone. And then we were able to just tell people. And so it's a very memorable time. I don't think I'll ever forget those few weeks. But the following weekend, we had about 25 airports connected to airportlawyer.org. And, uh, you know, it was it was a lifeline for a lot of people for the next four to five months as these new executive orders were coming along, the new Mm -hmm. versions. And interestingly enough, Airport Lawyer didn't necessarily need a lot of use until 
two or three weeks ago when we had the Iranian-American issues happening at the border. And so suddenly, you know, again, I am loose sleep. I'm trying to track what's happening, what's happening at the border, 150 people, what's the news. And uh, that weekend, actually, it was chaos all over again. Not to that extent it died down, thankfully, but it was very much almost the same nervousness and anxiety of how are we going to help these people. And so the following day uh, from that, you know, it was a Sunday, uh, there was a national coalition that had come through from those very first, you know, uh, travel ban days that came together and said, what are we doing? How are we doing this? And, um, you know, Airport Lawyer has restarted in a new way to help people. And so it's interesting because I never knew that I would be doing this. You sort of go where your instinct tells you and you, you, you lead when you don't see leadership. And that's essentially what I have been doing on a grassroots level. There are many, many wonderful leaders, but, you know, the problem is so, you know, insurmountable that you need everybody to come together and that's what's happened but following on from that you know knowing that people needed help and for the next six months people were coming to me saying hey I need four immigration lawyers for this event two events are coming up I need eight immigration lawyers for that immigration lawyers were the first responders Mm -hmm. in 2017 and they continue to be but 2017 was the catalyst of what was going to happen and know your rights events were happening and the the distressed passengers continued but what I was starting to think about is what is this administration going to do next right how am I going to get immigration lawyers to these other things and it was clear to me that detention is where everything is going to end up So that was clear to you? To me, it was, Mm -hmm. because one of his campaign rhetoric uh, and promises was mass deportation, you know, uh, and uh, how was he going to accomplish that? And so, to me, immigration lawyers cannot be the first responder pro bono forever. And I could see that uh, dwindling over time, that I, it was more and more difficult to get the two lawyers I needed. The for time and the passion on, on behalf of the lawyers, right? That's right. And, you know, mm-hmm. this is their profession. This is the way they pay for their daycare, for their school, their mortgage. And as the administration was changing policy, their own caseloads, our own caseloads were becoming stressful. And so if your own, you know, if you can't, if your oxygen is being taken away from you, how can you help somebody else? And so I started to think about how would I provide immigration lawyers to a court setting if that were to be an issue? And I started to doodle and, you know, talk to, you know, internal committee people and started to have a plan of what this could potentially look like. But then September 2017 comes along and the president actually does take away Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, otherwise known as DACA. And a lot of people thought that he would not do that. A lot of people. What did you think? I thought he would. You know, I think for him, I made a promise to my base and I'm going to keep it, even if it's haphazardly done, uh, poorly done, and it doesn't eventually pan out. But at least my base knows I tried. I think that's the mentality that we were dealing with. And if he had said a Muslim ban and he did a Muslim ban and he, you know, talked about all these other things and they were doing them, then it was conceivable in my mind that he would do something to make that mass deportation happen. But the courts luckily kept DACA alive. 
And, you know, the worry then had subsided to some extent. And But my doodling hadn't stopped because it was, to me, it was a matter of when, not if. Right. And you fast forward the clock to April 2018 and you start to hear stories of parents being separated at the border. And, you know, that's at the border, not Washington State. So we were not necessarily affected in the same way. Like, we didn't have to jump up and be first responders quite yet. But in my mind, oh my, I kept thinking, oh, my gosh, what if? It's coming, right? It, it could come. But I, I didn't know if it w- would or wouldn't. But in my mind, I just needed to be prepared. To me, knowing that people will eventually come to me for help, I just wanted to be able to help without... I wanted to be proactively ready as opposed to reactively Responding. What was your what among your fears? What were your worst fears at that point? I mean, what were your fears when the administration first started um, wrecking everything that Obama had put in place? And what were your fears again at this point in April two thousand eighteen? Like, can you can you explain them a little bit in in specifics? Mm-hmm. My fear was that he would start detaining people um, who would otherwise potentially have a path to stay in the U.S. But those people who he would detain wouldn't have means to hire attorneys or or have time to protect their due process. Could they be, you know, removed very quickly, for example? Um, and in my mind, the fear was, how am I going to help them? That is what would keep me up at mm-hmm. night. How am I going to help them? How am I solving this potential problem that is, you know, almost here? Uh, or could potentially come our way and I wouldn't have a a solution. And as I was seeing the goodwill and the energy of the immigration lawyers depleting because they were just trying to survive and stay above water, I was seeing the energy of non-immigration lawyers rising, saying, well, I have skills. Use me. How do I how do I help? Mm-hmm. But I don't have the substantive knowledge to help. How can I do this? So I could see there's a very uh, useful resource on one side that's not being used and another resource that is absolutely, you know, imperative to have, but they don't, we need to re-energize them somehow. And so I started to, that, that is what my doodle po- the, my doodling was about. How do I marry these? And so when separation par- par- of parents actually hit us uh, in June 2018, that's when the vision actually became live. And long story short, we eventually were able to incorporate, but not without a lot of obstacles that came my way. Um, but I have uh, four amazing co-founders. Uh, and a shout out to them, Erin Albanese. She's a nonprofit attorney who eventually helped um, to put this together. Uh, Jay Garrison, who is a, a nationally renowned immigration attorney. Takao Yamada, who had already helped me with airport lawyers. And our board member is Minda, Minda Sawood. She's a renowned immigration attorney. So uh, once we were able to get this organization in place with the people that we needed, I reached out to a secret immigration lawyer group called Law Mamas. Thirteen thousand. Not 000. so secret. <laughs> well, the, 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 the secret is that it's a private group and nobody mm-hmm. knows what we're necessarily talking about. But it's an incredibly talented group of women who are mothers, fierce and they could run the world if the opportunity were given to all of us together. And so I reached out to them saying, I know a lot of you have been wanting to help, especially when it's separating children from their mothers, you know, and being a lawyer is even difficult, more difficult to watch that. So those lawyers, there are eight of them that stepped up and said, yes, 
will help you. And I said, I don't know what this is going to look like. We're just diving in. And they gave this program life. And from that moment, June 2018 to now, where we have four cases ongoing, uh, we have had about 16, 17 cases. And we've had several, many successes, actually, where families have been able to stay here and not be deported. And in, and that's under which organization of yours? Washington Immigrant Defense okay. Network. The mm-hmm. what the website is called www.widen w i d e n law.org. And in essence we're training non-immigration lawyers in the substantive legal area and then we group them with experienced immigration lawyers where these lawyers the non-immigration lawyers are helping as associates and paralegals and drafting and essentially in case assistance. And the immigration lawyer is essentially strategizing and leading the case. We pay a small stipend to the immigration lawyer because it's imperative that they have some compensation. Otherwise, they wouldn't take the case. Mm-hmm. And uh, But we are meeting many goals. We're essentially training and mentoring, but we're also meeting due, due process rights while um, uh, compensating an immigration lawyer that wouldn't have so other, otherwise. And when you think about where you are now, where immigration, the immigration situation is with this administration is now compared to some of those lower points, I mean, do you feel that we're still in that lower point or do you think we're at all starting to get a little bit um, more good news or do you think there is bad news on the way? What's your What's your instinct? I'm really glad you asked that question. In my mind, and I was saying this to my husband uh, just after New Year's, I think this is the calm before the storm. Because 2020 is an election year. And the election year is when this president does everything he can to excite and engage his base. And one of the primary ways that he has been doing that is with hatred, bigotry, and immigration is the pathway to do that. And so if you look back at November 2018, suddenly there was a caravan. This caravan was on the news wherever you looked. And it was there for a certain amount of time. And the election was finished and the caravan disappeared. In my mind, we're going to see a caravan type situation, but it could potentially be darker. You know, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing, well, they already heard the deferred action case that was, you know, um, kept alive with the lower courts. And the decision is expected sometime in June 2020. Mm-hmm. And if they have a good result where they say, you know, this was a legal program, then we're all good. But with the composition of this particular Supreme Court, it's hard to know what they will do. And it is widely believed that they may actually declare the program illegal. Mm -hmm. And if they do that, you will immediately find hundreds of thousands of young people without status. So it could go in two ways. It could be that this president suddenly says, well, I can be a savior and I'm going to have immigration reform right this moment Mm -hmm. and give protection and a pathway to citizenship for for these young people. But knowing the track history that we've seen, I don't know if that would be the path that happens. And so what would be the alternative path? Could there be something that engages his base more? You know, could there be more detentions and deportations? We have to wait and see. But as an immigration lawyer who's trying to plan and prepare for what we might have to do to rise up as a community and be first responders again, I'm trying to make sure that 
we have um, widens in place ready to jump if we need to. But, you know, we are in Washington state. We're so lucky to be in a state with progressive leaders like Jay Inslee and the Attorney General Bob Ferguson and the Solicitor General um, Noah Purcell and uh, Mayor Mayor uh, Durkin, who has you know continued what Mayor Murray was doing and fighting against this administration. We have leaders up and down the state who are uh, essentially trying to be our shield when this administration is, uh, you know, targeting targeting immigrants in general. So this, uh, it, it's important for people to know that uh, our city of Seattle had a legal defense fund uh, to help immigrants. The state of Washington created a legal defense fund to help immigrants. And there will be other activities coming up soon. So they should sign up to our blog or keep an eye out on the news where immigrants who could potentially be de- uh, affected by the Supreme Court decision uh, to get help uh, soon after the decision in June. I, I think a little bit more about those in detention because we haven't at least the the news that I've been watching is so much about the campaign, the the Democratic, you know, those debates and where Trump is right now with the impeachment. And I haven't heard much lately about those who are detained. Do you have you heard anything about family separation lately? Do you know? Have you also noticed that that is less in the news? Uh, it's interesting. It's what you look for in the news. I don't watch live news anymore, um, but I have a lot of news alerts. And the separation of parents, what's happening at the border, uh, that is in the news uh, all the time in different ways, maybe not front page. But the problems are there. The cruel and inhumane treatment of human beings separating little children from their mothers, uh, putting two-year-olds and three-year-olds in courtrooms uh, where they can't even say a word. And they have to now say, my life is, you know, um, under threat. They can't say that. And so really the cruelty is really the point of this administration. Uh, And I hope in years to come, everybody that's been part of this process um, gets some sort of way to be accountable. You know, uh, just because you're an employee of an agency that's doing giving directives of this type of nature, do you not have a moral compass? Uh, and it's it's definitely very interesting and a very complicated a situation, but history will judge us. Yeah. What do you think people don't understand about immigrant populations that you wish they did? Immigrants are hardworking groups of people. Um, They are coming from a different country where maybe they have not had their rights or maybe they have not had opportunities. But these people come here uh, with dreams and they come here to make sure that they do get their hands dirty. And you will find that there are statistics on what immigrants do. If you didn't have immigrants, actually, we, we, Washington State an ex, is an example of how immigrants uh, enrich us. Mm-hmm. If you look at eastern Washington, where we have apple orchard after apple orchard, who's doing the apple picking? If you speak to any of those farmers, they will tell you that they cannot get workers to pick their apples unless they're immigrants. 
Uh, and, you know, through this, and you, you will probably find that if they don't have immigrants picking these apples, these apples are rotting. And apples is just an example. It doesn't matter what the agricultural product is. But they're relying on the immigrant community. And the, there's a visa called H2A visa. It's an agricultural visa. But there are limits on those. Uh, and so that's an example of what immigrants are doing in Washington state. Did you know that we have the, uh, I want to say the eighth largest uh, dairy industry? Yeah. And uh, immigrants are more than 51% of that population that helps that. And then, of course, we have the tech industry. You look at Microsoft and T-Mobile and Amazon. Who are the workers there? I come back to the phone example, the network, the hardware, the software. Skilled professionals are looking after these for us, whereas everyday Americans are not necessarily realizing that this is how your phone is working without any interruptions. You know, if you think about Nordstrom, this, you know, a premier shop that people go to and, you know, exude prestige. Nordstrom was an immigrant. If you think about the headphone that we're using, when it comes to Bose, he was an immigrant. If you think about the steel industry, the 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 I forget the name, Andrew Carnegie. He was Scottish. Immigrants have uh, are part of the fiber of this country, but and and everybody in this country is is has derived from an immigrant. Nobody here is unless you're Native American. You mm -hmm. have come from immigrant roots. So don't be selfish and don't be a nationalist because that doesn't serve uh, America. America is a hodgepodge of people that makes America great. It is great. You just right. let it, let, you need to let it be. Right. And immigrant issues are all of our issue. All of our issues. Right. What is giving you hope right now? Is there anything in this complex issue that's heartening you right now? I think the people, we the people need to step up. We the people need to take stock and we the people need to take our country back. And if the people rise, if the people truly rise, then we can have the America that we've all dreamt of and want and continue to have in the next 50 years, 100 years. Yeah. Well said. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about your work or your organizations that you want to share? Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking. Well, my day job hasn't gone away. My day job is being an immigration lawyer, you know, morning, noon and night. And my clients uh, are facing immigration issues all the time. You know, what worked yesterday doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work today. I have clients who have received green cards in theory, but the physical card hasn't been received in their hands. And the processing time has become elongated and therefore the client can't make their decision of do I go and have a visit outside the country or not. Um, mm. The primary visa that I work on, or one of them, is called an H-1B visa. That's the skilled professional visa. It was uh, started in 1990, but in 2020, it is going to have its biggest change in history. And that starts on, May, um, on March 1st. The government hasn't given us all the information that we need for it. And so information is coming piecemeal and it's causing trepidation for everybody involved. Uh, and it will be very interesting to see how this pans out in 2020. There is another visa called L1 visa. And um, there are very um, strict criteria in which you extend that visa and how you get a green card. 
but what has happened in recent times is the waiting time for all the categories I mentioned earlier and the country quota that I mentioned, the waiting time for, for that you know pie chart, if you like, has become so long that people that are on their temporary visas will out stay out uh, outgrow the time that they're allowed to stay here and so now we are our trending problems are how are we going to help this businessman or woman who has created this business from scratch and who had seven years to be here to continue this and then get a green card cannot stay here beyond seven years because that waiting time is now five more years now so Trending issues are coming in all the time when it comes to citizenship. You know, suddenly there are uh, different adjudication ways of, you know, standards that they're looking at. Um, when it comes to a big thing that's in the pipeline is called public charge. So when I mentioned there were four executive orders that were not signed, one of them was about social security and public assistance. If you have had public assistance at some point, uh, we will not give you a green card. And that executive order was so broad that it took two years for them to narrow it down. And they proposed rules um, last year that are now in litigation. But if those rules become implemented, it is going to affect almost every immigrant who wants to get a green card and stay here or even get citizenship. And so there's a very um, big fight that's going on in the courts. And just last week, the administration said, hey, Supreme Court, will you just listen to this case? Knowing that this administration has a composition that they want and they may actually try to please the the administration. It's, it's very hard to see what will happen. The Supreme Court hasn't accepted the case yet. Um, but it's something to be seen. Uh, you did ask me what gives me hope. I've listened to the book. It was an interview of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that came out maybe two, three, four months ago. And one of the things that she said that actually then gave me a little hope is that, yes, there's a composition of the Supreme Court at the moment that's conservative. But the chair, the chief of the Supreme Court may want to think about what his court, what his legacy is going to mm -hmm. be like. And that might be the hope that we need to hold on to, that Chief Justice Roberts will want to make sure that his legacy, the history that remains from this particular Supreme Court is just, you know, it's just and it, it, it delivers justice in the way it's supposed to. So Hard to say where we go, but 2020 is definitely a year that gives me the heebie-jeebies. Um, it seems like the stress level for you, I mean, I, I imagine the stress level for immigrants is extremely high. And I wonder about their physical health and their mental health. Um, and I wonder how, how much suffering there is in that regard. And I also wonder about you doing this work, how you are able to separate your life from this work that you do when you're so deeply invested in it. Thank you for asking that question. You know, uh, I think before 2017, I probably wouldn't have cared about self-care. You know, you just keep going. But at the end of 2017, after all that we chatted about, I did find myself burning out. And so I actually took meditation classes. I sort of wasn't quite sure where I go and find some peace. Uh, and meditation classes really saved me. And in 2019, I added yoga to my routine. I have an incredible yoga teacher. 
And 2020, my yoga teacher has introduced weights. And so currently I'm, you know, trying to figure out whether I can go to the gym or not. Um, but for first responders, self-care has never been more important. But as a whole, as a country, we need self-care. Mental health is so incredibly important. The reason that we have so much bigotry and racism, if everybody practiced meditation for five minutes a day, there would be a vibration that would then exude everywhere. And I, I, I really wish that there was a way that people would take stock and take five minutes for themselves. Because if you are able to calm your, your brain down and have some self-care, no matter what your self-care routine looks like, it makes us all better. It makes us all better. And I, I wish there were more love in this world. Love is what will conquer hate. It's a cliche, but it's so true. And, um, you know, I, I've had this conversation in my office with my team that Marion Williamson did come across as an unusual presidential candidate. But the one message that she did send and still tries to send is love is what we need more. You know, if you can have more love, then people will try to be more understanding of each other. And understanding is what we need, not just in America, but America is a, a beacon in the world. And if you look at what's happening in Hong Kong, what's happening in India, what's happening in different parts of Europe, love is what is necessary all, all around the world. But people look up to America. And if we lose our way, it's an example people can give, saying, well, Who's going to stop us? And if they can do it, we can do it. And that's what's going on in the world. We're in a, in a time of chaos. And if we had the opportunity to sort of sit above the world and have just a look down, I think we'd see chaos everywhere. You know, with climate change and Australia burning and floods and snowstorm, random snowstorm in Newfoundland, you know, or snowstorm even here, you know, there's so much that we need to do. But again, it comes to we, the people, we, the people need to rise. Um, one final question before we end. Um, historically, is this the, would you say immigration-wise, this is the lowest point in our country's history? Or has there, have there been times where there was more uh, punishment and restriction for immigrants? That's a good question in terms of historical uh, knowledge. And I have a little. Yeah. Um, I have less. <laughs> well, you know, this is, if it, when, I, when this was first starting uh, and I spoke to some of my colleagues, my mentors, I think they all confirmed that things have never been so chaotic. But I think this different times have different sentiments. And in 1920s, when the Chinese Exclusion Act happened, I bet people felt the same way. Mm -hmm. When the Japanese internment right. happened, I bet people felt the same way. That was a low point too. And so I think different eras have had their own issues and they probably felt just as awful. Um, I think what is important is people need to learn from history, not repeat history. And I don't think that's happening, at least from the leadership that we need. Um, so, you know, Laws have changed over time and they have become more and more restrictive. And if you look back and look at the Japanese internment, those tents looked very similar to the tents that we see at the, at the borders now. 
And history is repeating itself to some extent. And I hope we can come out of this better. We can come out of it soon. And I hope we don't create and give birth to the next generation of terrorists who will essentially basically say, well, this is what was done to us. Mm-hmm. And so I think the implications and repercussions of what we're seeing, of what's happening now, will be felt for decades to come. Mm-hmm. Tamina, where can listeners get more information? Where, where specifically would you like to send listeners to learn more about you and the work you do? Um, I would love for people to sign up to our blog. Uh, our website is www.watsonimmigrationlaw.com, and we have a blog there, and we write quite frequently with news updates and, um, you know, thoughts and so forth. Um, I have a Twitter handle, a Facebook page for our website, but I also have a podcast called Tamina Talks Immigration. Uh, it's not as frequent as it used to be. I used to have a live radio show, and then I had frequent podcasts, but I found that Time is very difficult to juggle. So I do have podcast episodes, but, you know, maybe one every two months these days. But sign up to that. Um, I would ask people to uh, sign up uh, to our Widen website, www.widenlaw.org. We do want to have non-immigration lawyers, non-lawyers help as well. We haven't quite got there yet, uh, but people can help. And so sign up for that. And the American Immigration Lawyers is a really wonderful source of information. The website is www.aila.org. They will collate information throughout the day. They'll um, post it saying this is um, the news uh, articles and headlines and these are the changes uh, and uh, the lawsuits that are happening. And it's a good source of information for anybody who's curious. Great. And I will post those links in the show notes as well and on the website um, for and then everything changed podcast.com. Tamina, I want you to take good care of yourself and continue that self-care because we need you. Thank and you. your work is so important. And I, I learned a lot today and I, I thank you for your passion and for giving me some time today. Well, thank you so much for having me and listening to my story. Grateful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.